Terrible Beauty, a two-part series examining literature which explores women's lives during the 1916 period of Irish history. Programme one, Easter Widows, written by Sinead McCall and presented by Debbie Hutchinson. We're in studio today to discuss a book, Easter Widows, written by Sinead McCool. Easter Widows discovers the story of the women who were left behind by the 1916 leaders who were executed following the Rising. I'm joined in studio by its author, Sinead McCool, and also a group of women involved in Near FM who've been reading the book for us. And I'm joined by Alison, Moira and Claire in studio. Hello. You're very welcome. And you're very welcome, Sinead, as well. So I suppose what kind of struck me when I came across this book was that it wasn't a story that we'd heard before. We've all learned about the 1916 leaders, their execution, but you never really hear about the aftermath of that. And I think learning about the women's story and their personal aftermath of it actually made you think about the personal effect of those people being executed. Sinead, what made you write this book? Where did you get this inspiration from? Well, I worked in Kilmainham Jail in the early 90s and the song Grace was still very popular. And one of the things that a lot of the people who would visit the the jail at the time would be that they would ask about the story of the last moments between Joseph Plunkett and Grace Gifford. And at that time, there was nothing in print that could tell that story. So obviously, working as a guide, you want to incorporate it into your your tour, but you didn't because you didn't know the story beyond what was in sort of myth and myth making and the the sort of so so it was one of those things that struck me. So I just happened to be at the the right place at the right time. I'd come through university and I'd been very fortunate that I'd done um, women's history. I was the second ever women's document course in um, with Margaret McCurtain. So you can see that the when you look at the, the, the course of women's history in the country and how it was taught that I was in that sort of first wave of of um, being told for the first time that, you know, how where were women and how would you find them? And the stories of how, for example, um, you know, letters were saved because they had, um, you know, notations of accounts. They were used as rough paper. So th- that was the reason that those women's letters were saved. And the whole um, notion for me of of actually finding your own source material. Um, it was it was awakened. I had been through the the university and studied modern Irish history. Um, and then I had studied history of art as well. So I was always interested in what they now describe as material culture. Mm. Um, so I would have observed and, and watched and looked at things. So a lot of my work has come out of exhibitions and answering my own questions. And so um, I began to just talk to people and, and, and meet them. And I went to my boss with an idea for um, the exhibition that's still in Kilmainham Jail all these year, years later. It was part of the 1996 um, exhibition. And that's the last words section. So if you go into Kilmainham Jail and you see the section that's last words, it actually is the beginnings of this book. It was the collection of those objects from the family members and going out to their houses that actually started the the questioning and the process of understanding. And as it ended, the military pensions became available. So at the very, very last stage of the book, material that I'd been told by Maura Mallon in particular was borne out in the documentation that was coming out of the files that was digitised and made available for everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay, and can I ask the ladies here, before you read this book or you came across this book, 
did you ever hear about or did you know about the Easter Widows or any of the people that are the subject of this book? Um, yeah, I mean, this year, 2016, has been an amazing year and I, and I engaged as much as I could with the commemorations and the whole history of 1916. However, I felt that it was only when I started to read the book Easter Widows that the, the women's stories really shone through. I think so much of the commemorations w were about the Irish um, men who were executed uh, and the stories and the, I guess the, um, the, the history of the rising mm -hmm. and the political history um, that I think uh, for me personally, I felt that the, um, you know, the, 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 the real story of, I mean, while the proclamation spoke about equality for men and women, that it didn't go into any depth as to what really that was about. And in the book, it really, you really see how much the women became involved. I mean, the book is very comprehensive. It goes not only the romantic side of meeting these men, but also how much work they did how engaged they were. You, you wonder how they actually reared their children at all or did the dishes or did the cooking. They were so involved. It was amazing. Well, I suppose one of the things that we've sort of brought out to people is, and in terms of the context of the time, that you have to remember that even if you weren't very wealthy, you still had access to domestic service. You know, so uh, so w that's one of the things that even though these women, you're talking about them not having money. I suppose the one exception to that would probably be Ag Agnes Mallon mm -hmm. right. um, and probably Lily Connolly. But we see <coughs> Lily Connolly in the aftermath of the rising um, after when she's actually better off and she's running a boarding house. So what it is, is trying to explain for people how things happen. And certainly, as you say, I was schooled in the history of the country and I learned very early on um, my thesis was on um, the Lavery's I, history of art and mm -hmm. the lady who was on the currency but one of the, the, the ways that, that that story came out was that the idea of, of the whole notion of, of salon politics which is, which is how women work and influence men but it doesn't get documented so you start seeing things in side avenues and of course we had access to Catherine Clark's m memoir and you really have to study that memoir because she, in, in, in sort of a bit of detail because she um, says things differently to everyone else. So she's the one who says, you know, nobody else was there. She's one of the few women that we know with, that was sworn into the IRB who was made privy to that. So all the men being executed means that there's this whole gap. So from the distance from the rising into the formation of Sinn Féin and the return of the men from prison, you've got a whole new set of men involved. And there's this wonderful section where she talks about how young de Valera is and she hopes his head isn't going to be turned. And I think when women are reading this book, they get those type of references. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling, there's a nuance, there's a, um, but it's not a hard, cold, detached attached version of history you must look at it as being I think that's what's emotion. engaging about the book mm. as well is the, the personal stories that you're reading and it just kind of makes history come alive as well when you're reading those stories Was there much involvement in terms of working class women being involved in the pre-1916 and the 1916 campaign because it seems to me that a lot of the women would have come from quite privileged backgrounds or well I suppose when you look at the rising there's 29 women who were in the Irish citizen army 
and we've heard the most about them this year. So Kathleen Lynn, even Ginny Shanahan, Molly O'Reilly has been mentioned. Margaret um, Skinner, yeah. And Margaret Skinner, all of those. And then, of course, uh, Elizabeth Farrell and, and Julia Grennan in The Rising joined the Citizen Army because they weren't being given the same focus in the um, with the volunteers in Common on. So what I would say to you about working class women, and that's why I suppose the book has been appealing to, it's across the class divide. And one of the things that we see about those women from the working class that ended up in this revolution is that you can imagine somebody from Maud Gon's background or the Count- Countess of Markovich's background or maybe some of the more, um, as you say, educated and, 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 and wealthier women would never have spoken to these women as equals. They would have known them as the the shop assistants in the shop. So this sort of throws up this look that you that nothing is ever as it seems. Um, there's a lot more complexity in 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 all of our interactions. So so I think what's very important to remember about this is that it was an, a, a rising of equals if you managed to make it into that circle. So if you had come through um, the labour movement and had either joined in Liberty Hall assisting in the aftermath of the lockout. So if you'd come along to, you know, go into the soup kitchens or distribute food or... So you had to have a level of of engagement, of civic engagement and social justice. And we see those people still out today in our community. But I suppose to go back again to the notion of the of the tenement, we rarely get a view of those women who live in the tenement. And I think through Lily Conley's story, you really see that vividly. Nora was a brilliant writer and she wrote a book as if she observed it all. So she maybe was one of these people with a phenomenal memory who seems to have been able to transcribe her parents' conversations as, as if you were in that room with them from a very young age. So her father, her, her book is called The um, Story of a Rebel Father. It was okay, published yeah. uh, really early on. And again, it's available. Again, if people you know look through the, the library service. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is that she describes how people could succumb to hopelessness. And we know that even today. The idea that her mother managed to, you know, make an apron out of a, a Hessian, isn't that what, a Hessian <laughs> bag? Yeah, yeah. She washed her hair and they watched her wild, weave her, her, her hair around into a, a, a bun as if it was yeah. a crown. Mm. And I, and I just there. noticed that they, yeah. she said that the other women all had kind of red, ruddy faces kind of from living there and she kept herself so nicely and her skin was always nice and everything and well and, and, and I everything. think that was she was she was she was Church of Ireland and again I mean I, I don't mean this disrespectfully to anybody but she but according to the her employer she had married beneath her by mm-hmm. marrying James Connolly mm-hmm. yeah. so w- what I would say to you about marrying beneath her was she was on her way up the social ladder and we have to remember at the time how difficult it is to break through those levels. So one of the things that we find about a lot of the women is that there were a lot of the strong farmers, which was the farmers with a little bit more acreage, who were sending their 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 their, their daughters to usually to become educated <coughs> as teachers. Now obviously there's a whole other story when we look at the, the legislation that comes in in the 30s that restricts that. But these women represent women who who are through their life circumstances, from their family background, 
they 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 just give you it's like slicing through society. So I think that's why um, the story pulls you in because it doesn't just tell one class or one woman, and you understand sometimes how life circumstances transform mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. generations, <coughs> not Absolutely. just one generation. And I suppose uh, Kathleen's situation was similar. I mean, that was another marriage that the family disapproved of when Kathleen uh, married Tom. Mm. But but if you look at that, if, like if you look at that from the perspective of, of normal historical approach. The background to that is that he was 20 years her senior. That seemed to be more of an issue, yeah. I think, than the, yeah. you know. Yeah. I'm not surprised at Kathleen, though. She was very um, independent-minded. I'm not surprised that she went for someone older. She mm. seemed to be very mature at a young age. You know, she had her own business, the largest business of its kind or whatever in Limerick at the time. I'm just not surprised. But like that, like you're saying, I think it was more that he was 20 yeah, that's, years. I suppose that was the question I was going to ask yeah. is, was mm. it his age or was it the fact that um, he was he had very limited financial means when he came out of prison? Because I imagine a lot of young women married men that were much older than them in those yeah, it's, days. It's not, the, it's not the age. I think what, what I was saying there in terms of the political side is if we look at Kathleen and their marriage, from the basis of not looking at this sort of wider source material, you assume she's a daily of Limerick, she marries Tom Clark, and that 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 is an acceptable union and that they're all part of the movement, as it was known all the time. Mm. Um, So we look at at people who end up in, in political marriages so they end up you assume a lot from it. What we found from their um, love letters was that she didn't attend the uh, or meeting of the Daughters of Ireland which was Maud Gon's mm. political group for women so she opts not, not to do that even though she was in the house the night and she was asked to go along with Mrs Egan who's going to it so that's a surprise so she's less political than her sisters so when you have that information in your head you then look for the clues elsewhere to prove that and one of the things that I was told at one stage and I don't know if it's in the book per se is that she never liked to be referred to as Kathleen even right to her death she liked to be referred to as Mrs. Tom Clark Mm. so she did what she did in the aftermath of the rising for Tom she wasn't a natural politicised person she was a brilliant businesswoman but it was this idea for me that if you look at the sort of wizened old man that's in the old stamps, let's say the 66 mm-hmm. stamps, mm-hmm. the image you always see of Tom Clark, and you put her in juxtaposition to him, the idea that, that, that you don't marry particularly for looks, our whole looking at celebrity today is distorting the whole mm. sense of where people fall in love with people. It's, it's in a movement and he, of her hair that he's drawn to her. She flicks her plait as she's at her breakfast table and he start, he, he has an involuntary movement and he touches mm. her hair. And that's the first connection. And so you have that electric element, which that's what I mean about the romance. It's that you're drawn into Little a visual Little subtleties moment. more yeah. than anything. Yeah. 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 And then all of a sudden you say, OK, so he has decided he's going to focus on Ireland. He is going to die for Ireland. And so even though their relationship and their letters are probably the most romantic, at the end, she actually has to say to him, well, what about myself and the boys, Tom? And he says, you know, more or less, you know what I was going to do. You have to accept this. So there was a, there's a cruelty and a harshness in their relationship, and yet it's the most loving. And it throws up this whole question for all of us as women in relation to it is like all of these women were out on another path by marriage they threw themselves into another direction and as mother of, mothers of children that also changes and adjusted them mm. and so when I'm writing 
it's also to help people to understand where they're voting or what they're doing in in the contemporary time. And mm-hmm. I think that really works then with real stories. I picked this passage because, as opposed to being a Limerick woman, uh, I could identify a little bit with Kathleen. And of course, uh, she was married to Tom Clark. This is uh, one of the lovely uh, love letters, uh, just the parts that he had uh, written to Kathleen during their courtship. Katie, I miss you very much. Life wouldn't be worth living if I had to face the future free and unfettered. God almighty, how fond I am of that chain that binds us to each other. Yes, you're my first thoughts in the morning and the last at night are of you. And I will make you laugh when I get you back telling you of the fool things I catch myself doing in my lonesomeness. God bless you, darling, and send you back safe and strong to me. What struck me time and again was um, how much they understood the cause and wouldn't try to dissuade the husband from, say, going on hunger strike. I was reading it and thinking, what would I do in that situation? Mm. But they they really, really understood the convictions. And in, in some cases, they were their own convictions. But as you say, they maybe came to them through marriage. and um, But I just felt, gosh, they really, really completely understand and respect what they have and to the, do. In the aftermath, I often thought that it was the women that carried um, the beliefs of the leaders the strongest. Yes. And yeah. Kathleen Clark was the, I, I say oh, she was a thorn in the side of De Valera <laughs> from day one. And as you said, I agree with you. And I think that came through in your book is it wasn't about the politics with her. It was about it was about her husband. Loyalty. And fulfilling Love. his legs. And mm. was it Kathleen that on her grave, was it her grave that she puts the wife of Tom yeah. Clark? Was oh it? I just, yeah. and, and everything it, was to shine a light on him and his yeah, career and everything yeah. he did. The whole, her whole life's work. And it's romantic in a way, but in another way, I was kind of thinking, it's a bit God, submissive you know, I was thinking, yeah. you know, but by the same token, her connection and her loyalty to him led her to becoming involved in the government, to becoming the first Lord Mayor and all of that. So it's not like she was sitting at home and mourning him and, you know, that she wasn't yeah. an active member of society. But the, the bit on the grave really got me at the end, yes. I have to say. God knows, my girl, you're never out of my thoughts. And I won't try and tell you how lonely I have felt ever since I came to Dublin and the chilly feeling that comes over me when I start up to count how long it will be till we are together again. Although both my mother and Hannah do everything in their power to make me comfortable, they can't understand me sitting for long stretches without a word. Sure, my thoughts do be with you, but it's choked down and no one knows how my thoughts are running. What's interesting about that is that it's it's only I mean you've only looked at seven women. Mm, mm. It wasn't all that kind of you know women being just I suppose um, completely support. I mean you, there's divorce in the book. Mm-hmm. There's uh, infidelity in the book. Um, <clears throat> there's um, you know questioning a marriage between I suppose between Grace and Joe mm-hmm. where. 
in the aftermath that they, they go to. Can we talk to, about that yeah. a little bit, the, the, the gra- yes. Grace and Joe? Because this is the, the big romantic song Correct. that came out in the 80s, which was yes. about Grace. And they married before he was executed in Kilmainham Jail. Yeah. But when you read the book, it's not as, I don't know if anyone would like to discuss that. It's it's not as romantic as we see, as it seems, is it? No. Yeah, it's no. a very interesting one, actually. But I suppose what it is, it's to do with, with the time frame. And like I was as shocked as, you know, when I could discovered that that the element of the rebound. And, and I suppose what I would say to you is a lot but of this m- is uh, Joseph is basically he was in love with, with another woman. Yeah. Colombo yeah. Carroll. And, and the you know, this, he wrote, wrote a, a, a book, The Sonnets to Columba. And, you know, he goes to America and they're still in correspondence and she doesn't have feelings for him, their family, friends and that. And then he writes to Grace all about her conversion to Catholicism because she was from she was Church of Ireland. And then they they, they sort of come together. But I suppose what I would say to you in relation to that story as well is we're only as good as our source material. Mm -hmm. We're only as good as what we can find. And, you know, you have to remember, too, that she doesn't come out great when she's looking for monies and in the later period in time. But at the same time, in sort of in in counterbalance to that was that if you had found another cache of letters that maybe had Mm -hmm. talked about her Mm -hmm. emotions, she may come across um, differently. And Mm. I think that one of the things that that you're very conscious of um, as a biographer is that you must all the time be mindful that you are steering your readers in a particular direction but that's the evidence that survived from her and that's what what it seemed Mm -hmm. to to suggest and I think that um, you know a a relationship that that hasn't actually become marriage that hasn't actually gone beyond that first stage is very very hard to assess anyway but I think what it was important for um, the story um, is that idea that that she's probably the best known. She was the one that was, you know, made wife and mm-hmm. widow all in one night. The whole notion that the that the British actually allowed that to happen um, is is fascinating. And then the idea that it was an uh, an Irish man returned from the war mm-hmm. who was a policeman who was in the jail and he wasn't um, a prison a prison warden, so he didn't have that training and he just allowed that to happen and so that became another part of that story and that mm. creation of of the of the the turning of the tide in relation and that changed politics so it becomes personal but then at the other stage on the wider scale it's a, it's, it's actually a yeah. big and the, game and changer there's, there's very strong myths around 1960 leaders and you know their background and their relationships with their wives as well and i think that's what's been good about the centenary is we've unpicked little bits of yeah. that and we've unpicked the background as you said maybe women have got a little bit more exposure I know from my point of view I found out a lot more about women's involvement in 1916 Do you think the men were a bit selfish? I think revolutionaries <laughs> are definitely selfish any revolutionaries yeah. anywhere mm-hmm. I, I just anytime I've read about any and very um, prolific public figures, um, particularly anyone, I suppose. Yeah, revolutionaries, they, they are selfish. They have to be. And um, I, I mean, I, I would think it would just be my worst nightmare to get involved with someone who was committed to a cause. A cause, yeah, someone who's committed to a cause. I think, of course, family would come last. Person, mm-hmm. um, relationships would come last. And um, yeah, I'd say it must have been very difficult. And I think just to follow on with uh, uh, with, with that, Alison, is that I think that's really evident in Lily and James's marriage. I mean, she he's he has a cause. Yeah. He's single-minded about it. 
you know, it's the labour cause, it's the mm. socialist movement. He brings his own children to the rising. That's what struck me yeah. is that they didn't. Was it Roddy? Was the little fifteen-year-old yeah. yeah. boy. And she, yeah. Pe- she yeah. pleaded with him not to. She said he's only a child, and, and he said, "Well, I was fourteen. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose just to uh, uh, another point that Lily is on her own. I mean, there's like lots of babies coming into the scene mm. all the time. Mm-hmm. They're having lots of babies and. She's on her own an awful lot. He's travelling to America. He's going on these lecture tours around America. You know, yeah, absolutely. Um, They've a nomadic existence. Like, they're moving the so much. Own an awful lot. But I he seems like a nice man, but yeah. he's just... It's kind of like this is it. You have to. And, put and up James with this. Connolly was was considered a feminist, and he would have yeah. he wore the badge yeah. to say vote for women. And the Citizens Army was the first he army wanted, that allowed yeah, women. Yeah, into but which Irish De Valera put an end to that. Yeah. Like, but I mean, James Connolly was considered a feminist at the time. But I suppose it's kind of like what Sinead is saying. Are we? We're looking back on it with eyes from 2016, mm-hmm. yeah. and the role of women and the role of men was very mm-hmm. different. And to us, a 15 year old was a child, mm-hmm. um, Roddy Connolly, but a 15-year-old in those days, Sinead, wouldn't have been considered Not a child. No. And well, certainly in um, working-class families, they would have earned their keep. And I know from my own grandparents who were long gone, they were definitely, they were all out working 14, yeah. 15. And people yeah, emigrated so. probably around those yeah. ages as well. Yeah. I'm reading this passage because I found it quite an emotional piece. Two days after the court-martial, on Thursday, 11th of May 1916, a British officer called to the O'Brien's house at 11pm and asked Lily to accompany him. She went with him, thinking that James wasn't well, that he had taken a turn for the worst. She went with Nora to Dublin Castle by military ambulance. When they entered the room, James said to his wife, Well, Lily, I suppose you know what this means. She said, Oh no, Jim and she laid her head on the bed and sobbed. But your beautiful life, Jim, your beautiful life. He tried to comfort her. Wasn't it a full life, Lily, and isn't this a good end? As she continued to sob, he said, Lily, please don't cry, you will unman me. A few days later, a young soldier, 16 or 17 years old, called to the house to see Lily. He told her he had been part of the firing squad that had killed her husband. He said that before his death, James had offered the soldiers forgiveness, describing them as brave men doing their duty. But the young soldier was still consumed with shame for having killed such a man. Lily comforted him by saying that James knew he was a working class boy under orders. Once her husband had forgiven him, she told him that he did not need her forgiveness and that he should not worry any more. Lily, even when he died, was a very unique person in that she refused the ITGWU's um, pension because she said her husband was dead and she didn't expect to be supported afterwards. And I think that that's a very clear indication that she was a very giving person and she was called mother by all of her in-laws and that. So she was a very loving and giving person. And I suppose what I wanted to bring out there in in the story, and I suppose this isn't anywhere else, is trying, and it took me two years to write that section because there's so many books written on James Connolly. And what I didn't want to happen was to have a criticism that I hadn't actually explained who James Connolly was. So if you came to James Connolly for the first time, you needed to understand how big 
an influence he was in the world of trade unionism and that. And so if you think about it more like supporting someone who has a great talent, that that there are people out there who actually still say, you know what, you're the one who has the cause and you are the one who has the mission. So if you remember the very first story that that's recorded about her where she helps him write a speech because she was a better writer. And then she ran away when he got up on the podium and mm. she ran all yeah. the way home yeah. because the whole idea that she that she couldn't do that. She knew what she could do and she did that to the best of her ability. And I think that's really what we have to sort of see mm-hmm. in that in that relationship rather than the inequalities as we see them, as you mm. said, from from the from a modern perspective. Mama had an extraordinary dignity, though she was so retiring. Maxwell went forward to shake hands with her, the man who had given the order to execute her husband. She just put her hands behind her back. She told him she had come for her husband's wallet and watch. Who's your favourite character from the book? Do we have a, a favourite? Start with you. Um, well, I quite liked Lily Connolly, actually. Um, I thought she was tough, yet... Like she was in the domestic sphere, but she was just seemed like a nice kind of person and supportive of him. But I don't know. I just thought there was a great warmth came out. There was a warmth, yeah, and and a steeliness at the same time, particularly when she was talking to General Maxwell and a great depth in her character. I think as well because the way she forgave the soldier who are she spoke with them who had shot James and um, I quite liked her there was a classiness to her as well I think she was quite a lady um, yeah I quite liked Lily Connolly I liked Maud Gone as well <laughs> because my version of Maud Gone would have been secondary school Yates do you know this she's a much more interesting character much more she? interesting yeah. and I think mm. she seemed like a nice sort as well of person you know a bit mad mm. but like I quite liked Maud as well I thought she was very interesting what I thought was interesting about Maud gone in comparison to the other women just her life parallel to the other widows in the way that she kind of lived a very liberal existence she did what she, as she pleased she had a child outside wedlock whereas he felt like a lot of the other women were bound by convention so constricted and they would be vilified if they did lived the type of life that and she that, had. That's because of her background. <clears throat> but because really of the aristocracy yeah. and the, the power mm-hmm. and the money. <clears throat> the money. Mm. When she walked into a room, she was the most beautiful yeah. woman. And even when the other one of the other women in the book met her, I yeah. think Lily, she came to Lily's home. Can you imagine the contrast mm. of these two mm-hmm. women's lives? And she came to her home and... Uh, Lily just said, and one woman to another saying, she was the most beautiful woman standing in the doorway. I'm going to read this little passage here about the beginnings really of Maud Gon's disastrous marriage to John McBride. Everyone seemed to be against it. Everyone warned them against it. Honoria McBride had also written to her son, warning him against the marriage. I have seen Maud Gon. She is very beautiful. She is a great woman and has done much for Ireland, but she will not make you happy. You will neither be happy. She is not the wife for you. I am very anxious. Think well what you are doing. John's eldest brother Joseph had warned him against it too. He believed that Maud was used to going her own way and listens to no one. He had told his brother, 
These are not good qualities for a wife. A man should not marry unless he can keep his wife. Further down, um, Arthur Griffith, from um, who had later found Sinn Féin, also advised against it. And he wrote to Maud and said, For your own sakes and the sake of Ireland, where you both belong, don't get married. I know you both, you so unconventional, a law to yourself, John so full of conventions. You will not be happy for long. Forgive me, but think while there is still time. It was very interesting to me that my daughter told me that not alone is Maud on the curriculum because of WB8s. She's also on the curriculum because of Paul Durkin. And Paul Durkin is a direct descendant of the half-sister. You probably didn't know that. She, oh, she is, that. He is no. a grandson. Yeah. So he has a poem about Ooh. meeting Maud and her coming out and, you know, her hand comes out to him as a child and it seems like a claw and all of that. So so his personal life is played out in public through our school system and it was important that people would read mm-hmm. that story. And that's kind of a, it's, it is a fascinating story that in terms of the divorce proceedings and that divorce case that took place, which, did you ever get to the bottom of that? That, you know, did Maud make up those accus- accusations of child abuse or certainly I think that there was an incident but I think that it was an incident that was exaggerated by a child who who didn't like somebody the, the whole notion again this is about reading and I, I hope it came across in the book the idea that we didn't have bathrooms the way that we have today that you had a chamber pot in your bedroom mm. the fact that the child was used to making her way through the whole house and going from room to room to room I believe came upon Major John at one stage mm. and she probably did see something which was very shocking but it was told back to her mother and her mother was it seems to me was looking for an exit strategy and so she was trying to to at the outset go and put a, an, um, something on the table for John that would say you go to America this isn't working as almost like a modern separation but the problem was their son and so by telling the story and including the letter in it, which is in the documentation of his version of visiting her and not being allowed to see his son doesn't it contrasts terribly with what happened afterwards because he did lose contact with his son he didn't go back to Paris he didn't have his visitation rights the story is that the reason that Sean McBride spoke with such a strong French accent is because his mother wouldn't speak to him in English so he wouldn't be able to converse with his father who had very bad French mm-hmm. now we don't know that categorically mm-hmm. But it's that level of intensity that happens when a a relationship breaks up badly. And so I felt that if somebody read this book who had been through that situation, they could work and empathise with the character, whether right or wrong. But I must say that when I read the transcripts that John McBride had of his accounts in court, his version was very believable. And then I began to question what was in the public domain, which was the the Maud and Yates correspondence. And then I thought, and I thought, I'm in the middle of a messy divorce. This friend of mine is going to be talking to people and he's going to be my spokesperson in, in Ireland. I, of course, am going to give him a version of events that will be acceptable mm-hmm. if it's talked about. And so then I began to see that that, again, was a level of fabrication. Now, the her half-sister did keep contact with her in later years. Her husband never liked Maud, but she kept contact. And the families were not estranged in later years. So when you look at that, you realise that then there can't be an incident that is so graphic between when she accused the John of having a relationship with her half-sister 
and I'm sure that Eastold, there's a wonderful piece that you probably recognise at the end of the book when I was trying to come up with the, the sort of the tail end of that story. And Eastold's talking to her mother and she talks about how that that John McBride, that she still didn't like John McBride, but she felt that John would have been a different person with a different family. And again, you realise that... They just so weren't much, suited. Yeah, it felt like exactly. you wondered, they do they the ever really... They were like equals in discussions and things like that, but you wonder... They're just such a tempestuous relationship the whole time. They're quite spiteful to each mm. other. Mm-hmm. I I know, obviously, as a relationship breaks down, that's what happens sometimes. But, like, you just wonder, I did they ever really wondered, like each other? just marrying much? him despite everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean, they'd been warned um, against mm. it. And I think mm. it was Arthur Griffith that said something like she hadn't got, I know, the moral fibre, the moral qualities you look for in a wife. And, um, you know, but she, I, I wondered at times, was it was it just you shouldn't marry him? And I know you were saying she refused him at first, but I just... And she took was, his name. I thought yeah, it was interesting then. Just, I it think just, she, it was just tempestuous from beginning to end. It felt um, like she liked attention a bit as well. She oh, took his name or something yeah. later on when, yeah, when it all died down. And it was kind of like, mm. oh, and she didn't she, want to be do with him. Yeah. Now... Oh, he's cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take his name. But again, you have to remember in the context that her of, son yeah. has his name and yeah. her son yeah. had returned to Ireland. So once they took the decision to come back, she embraced the fact that he was uh, executed in 1916 and the pride that there would have been for Maud at that stage that her son was in politics. Mm. But of course, his, mm-hmm. his political life was, was quite was quite different and he was sort of, you know, he ends up in, in power. And ironically, he's in Clan the Public that at the moment that the Ar- Ireland gets declared a republic. So what I was trying to do all the time was was to close the circles. So the idea that I didn't know at the outset, obviously, that because uh, again you have to keep reminding yourself it's not a work of fiction. Mm. So the idea that they all their lives all crisscrossed at some point. So I didn't have a crisscross for Agnes Mallon with anybody else because she seems always, even in terms of the pensions not to be belong in the group, right? Yeah, she seems the most mm-hmm. tragic figure to me oh, in the absolutely. aftermath as well. And I, I think that the grounds that she didn't receive the full pension was that he wasn't a signatory on the proclamation, mm, was right. it? So mm-hmm. he wasn't considered. But I just, I really, was her life as tragic as it seemed in the book? Or? Well, I suppose I would have been very close to the, that story because I would have met two of her children. So she didn't bring the sorrow. That's the one thing they keep saying to me is then Father Malin, as you know, is still alive at 103 mm. and completely um, lucid and, and with it, probably more than many people much younger than him. But he says all the time she didn't deliver that sorrow on them, that they that she tried her best to give them as normal an upbringing. But it was there and she was ill and her illness was, was directly attributed to this, to the to the shock of the um, hearing the news that Michael would die and she was pregnant with Maura. Um, I suppose what I would say to you in terms of it is, yes, I suppose that's my feeling that they were the mm. most tragic and their story comes closest to the modern times. So it's touching off somebody in a way which is incredible that you the, have yeah. that sort of continuity. Um, I suppose and that, hmm? that, that, that the last words of Michael Mallon, I thought when he's talking about he wrote that very personal letter from Kilmainham Jail and when he spoke about his little toddler boy that just plucked the heartstrings mm, of yes. me when he said he wouldn't mm. hold him as well and you, you don't really when you when you grow up in Ireland and you learn about 1916 you don't really hear those those stories about the leaders as I said they're on a poster and there's kind of a myth about them but I found that quite moving as well when he was talking about his son. This is Sinead Bakul um, I'm the author of this book and I'm going to read the epilogue the um, the heroic one Father Joe Mallon only once saw his mother cry 
It was sometime in the early 1920s. He remembered one day coming upon her silently weeping while washing at the sink. He recalled that it was a bright day and it may have been a May morning, the anniversary of his father's execution, on the eighth day of the month. He remembered leaving the room without being noticed to tell his younger sister Maura that their mother was crying. They did not disturb her. Agnes never talked to them about their father's execution. Joe said that she didn't want a dark and sh- sad shadow hanging over their lives, that they would have a normal a family life as possible. Years later, Maura would remark on this, telling me that her mother never cried, that she would just sigh. She never shared her sadness with them. She was too good for that, Maura would say. I have been writing this book on and off for 20 years now. I could not have completed it without the recently released witness statements or the military pension archives, which have given validation to the upset that Maura felt about how the state treated her mother. Because her father had not signed the proclamation as the member of the Provisional Government of the Irish Republic, his family was left in dire poverty, and she believed this also contributed to her mother's early death. As Maura told me many times in the last years of her life, I always thought that my mother was the heroic one. She was the one left behind. I had a very strange experience as well, which obviously isn't in the book, but I was offered by Maura Mallon around the same time that that I would take her mother's engagement ring and I wouldn't accept it. One, I had just got engaged myself and I have to say that the that the, the ring itself was the most incredible ruby and and, and gold and, and, and it was eye-catching and I remember thinking that if I was given it I wouldn't be able to resist and I would wear it and that I wouldn't be big enough to give it to okay. a museum and I didn't accept it and it was stolen and Maura was very, very upset with me that I hadn't accepted the ring because now it's somewhere and someone doesn't know its story. And what did Maura and her brother, what did they think about their treatment by the state over the years following the rise? And I suppose particularly when you look at somebody like De Valera, he he had a kind of a strange attitude to women, De Valera, didn't he? Well, he had he was he was I think him, a lot of people would see that he had he had been sent home from America by his mother to be brought up by his grandparents. So there was that element that he was somebody who wasn't brought up by his own mother and had that loss, even though she still was living somewhere else. Yeah. So he'd had a very unusual um, um, upbringing, and I think that affected how he saw women's role enshrined in the home. I don't I don't think that his intention was sinister. I thought I think he he had a very idealized view of what women and where they, you know, by economic necessity was the term in the Constitution, which, of course, his mother's moving to America and sending him home. The phrase may have been Mm. even used to him. So, yeah, I I think that the understanding of the of the pension system has to be seen in the context of officialdom. Mm. The decision had been taken that those who signed the signatories were the founding fathers of the state in the same way that they have been seen during the commemoration period. And anyone else was seen as a soldier who had fought in that time and the fact that they may have been killed by sniper fire or by the a British bullet didn't make a difference. Okay. But in terms of how the public perceived the Malins, they saw them as, as, as one of the executed leaders, obviously because he was one of them, but he's the only executed leader 
that actually had children. So you, you have the others like some uh, Michael um, O'Hanrahan wasn't married, Con Colbert, Sean Houston, Roger Casement, um, Thomas Kenton Cork. So all of those men, and I haven't finished Con Colbert, they're, they're all people who, who didn't have um, dependents in the same way, so it only affected the Mallons. What was your kind of favourite artefact, memento, letter or piece of information that you uncovered over those 20 years? I suppose the first thing that comes to mind um, is the box of shells that um, Barbara picked up from the sand and uh, where she was picked up by um, Ina Connolly and brought back to the house at Miramar when her mother was had gone out to sea and she was missing and there was that in that confusion she had been given um an eau de clone box and she had been playing it and she'd been putting shells into it and I mean she was a toddler at the time and the fact that she had one retained that box of that for, and kept it always and the fact that she had a vivid memory of somebody um not keeping an eye on her and that she'd found her way into the garage and that her mother had been laid out and that she looked like a mermaid with pieces of uh, seaweed still in her hair and the vividness of that sort of memory and I think one of the things that I've become very aware of I think over the 20 years is that this whole notion of um, intergenerational trauma and things that are carried from one generation to the next and I think that it's very important to remember that that artifact which is on loan to Kilmainham Jail even now um carries with it almost that 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 the, the those 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 deep set memories yeah it's fascinating that even at that early age she could remember that image of her mother she said she was only a toddler at the mm. time was she i didn't realize they actually had the box of shells that they still exist as well because that story in the book is just really heartbreaking isn't it that they'd all gone away on this holiday as a kind of a day out for all the the women who'd been widowed. Yeah, I mean, and the fact that they were all together. I mean, I suppose it's like um, this idea that, you know, you hear stories and a little bit like, what is the difference between sort of disjointed memory and putting it together in sort of a narrative? I suppose that's what where the length of time was important because you'd have been told one piece of information, then you would find a newspaper article or something that would be able to flesh out that story and, and, and make it so that you could verify somebody's first-hand account with what had actually gone on and then make it into a fuller account so that people felt they were there, that yeah. they would be at that moment and how that it, it, it had um, unfolded. Why do you think it's important that the stories of the Easter Widows be told? I suppose I was very fortunate that I ended up at an event earlier this year where the Taoiseach was, um, you know, thanking people for their involvement in the commemoration. And he, he, as they say in the, in the, in the sort of the, the term, he gave me a shout out. Um, but I have to say, I, I was standing there and I was sort of rooted to the floor when he said, and, and, and you know, and thank you today, McCool, for making these people real. Oh, 
well, we're almost out of time on the programme here. So uh, just to thank you all for coming to Alison Moore and to Claire and to you, Sinead, for coming in to talk to us today. And that was Easter Widows with Sinead McCool and the women of Near FM. Easter Widows was produced as part of a terrible beauty, a Near FM series produced by Mark Finnegan and presented by Debbie Hutchinson. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.